Where is your favorite place to eat supper? Where is your favorite restaurant or location? Somebody uh, shout out uh, online if you want to send a restaurant recommendation. We'll take it and pass it on. Where's your favorite place to eat supper? Earl's. Earl's. Thank you. Got that one. My mom's house. My mom's house. <laughs> That's a, not a bad one. Jeannie's table. That's how that man stayed married for over 50 years, if you're wondering. That's right. Anyone else care to offer their thought? Sushi? Yeah. <laughs> Anywhere but my place. That's, that's a pretty good answer, too. Uh, I want to show you a picture of one of my favorite places to eat supper. I'll put it on the screen. That restaurant is called Supper in the Field. And uh, a week ago last Friday, Lee and I went home to Whitewood where I grew up. Haven't been there since October of last year due to COVID. And there you see, uh, I didn't get pictures of combines and everything else I meant to. I forgot, but I got a picture of my dad doing what he does. Hat off, praying for the food before we got to eat. And it was a beautiful night. Um, one of my favorite parts of eating out out is the everybody gathered around the smell of the harvest and what's what's been going on and then my favorite dish is the mashed potatoes you can take the picture down yeah thanks the mashed potatoes with a we will call a cucumber salad thinly sliced cucumbers with a creamy mayonnaise liquid liquidy dressing that you then poured on top of the mashed potatoes what a horrible illustration for Fasting Sunday, I'll tell you that <laughs> right now. But I love it. And it's really great to eat supper in the field for harvest when there's a harvest. Harvest meals don't always feel that great when the machinery's breaking down or there's trouble going on with, uh, with the situation or as so many people experience this year, the drought where you didn't really need a supper in the field because it was done by lunch. Lots of guys, lots of families, lots of situations. Not good if you're praying. For those affected by the drought, please continue to do so. But I am currently 46 years old, and to my knowledge, at least on our family farm, there's never been a harvest, there's never been a year without a harvest. There's always been... That's not always been good. They've gone through drought. In the 80s, there was years of grasshoppers that devastated things, but there was always some semblance of a harvest, that once a seed is planted, it's fertilized, it gets a rain and sun, there's nothing you can do except let the seed do what it is programmed to do, and that's to grow and to produce something. Do you know why there is supper in the field? This is not a trick question. Because there's workers to feed you can seed and you can watch the plant grow and you can have a harvest that is ready, but unless there is workers and a process and a plan to bring in that harvest, that harvest just gets to sit there. And so we feed people in the field. Everybody thinks it's a big highlight, but it's to get them back to work quicker. No, that's not true. It's a great experience. But, but really it is, got to feed those who are taking, who are taking care of the harvest. you got to take care of them. 
The same goes for spiritual harvest. If there are not people to help with the harvest, if there's not a plan for the harvest, the harvest just stays in the field. It just stays in our world. Jesus said, the harvest is ready. Now what? That's what we're talking about today. The harvest is ready. Now what? What does it look like for us to be part of a spiritual harvest? Jesus taught about the harvest. He did harvest work, and he is the ultimate reason for the harvest. We sang about him in those songs. He was bringing eternal life. I'll walk upon salvation because of what he did. I get to receive it because of what he did. There is potential for a harvest for eternal life spiritually because of what Jesus did. So today we're going to look at the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 9 and what he says regarding the harvest to those of us who are his followers and call ourselves his disciples. I want to pray just before I read the scripture. Come Holy Spirit, I ask. I invite you to come upon me to say words you want me to say because I recognize in my own life and probably in the lives of many here or listening that this topic has not been handled well always in the life of the church. That it's been used for guilt, it's been used for shame, it's been used for fear. And today, God, we want to talk about the harvest the way you intended it. One with expectation urgency, invitation to follow you in it, and that you're the Lord of the harvest and we are not. And so, God, would you align our thinking about harvest, about souls, about spiritual eternity with that of your heart, which is the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, that it's not fear, it's not condemnation, it's not shame. And so, Satan, I rebuke you and your desire to turn the discussion about people's lives and souls and our place in it to a thing of fear or pressure. And we reclaim it for the purposes of God and how you want us to embrace the harvest, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. My assignment, it feels like today, is to kind of give a fresh picture or re-picture what the harvest is about. You see, I recognized... I have some pressure in preaching this. I had my wife tell me when she heard what the name of the sermon was that she was really excited to hear it. That, that means there's something there. And then I had somebody in the music prayer set, they, they were really excited by the title of the message. And I'm going, man, I hope I have something more than a title to share today. But I, I recognized in the preparation for this to some degree that I'm kind of tainted, jaded, cynical, messed up when it talks about the things of the harvest. Because when it comes to things of the harvest, I immediately think getting people to pray the sinner's prayer and to become Christians. And that if I don't do what God wants me to do and go make Christians and disciples by them praying that prayer, that not only will they not get to go to heaven, I'm going to have their blood on my hands, is what you would hear. And so I am humbled today to be up here to talk and share with you about something like this where we've been involved in ministry for 20 some years and getting to lead people to Christ and disciple them but but to recognize that there is this place where we could be doing it from the wrong motives at times 
Are we concerned about the end time harvest and about people coming to know Jesus because they need to know Jesus and they get to know him and they can be forgiven and loved and saved? Or are we going down a path where I don't want to be in trouble with God so I better see that some people become Christians? And I haven't really felt or thought like that for a long time, but I can tell you that I spent a lot of my high school years feeling exactly like that. September long weekend was the 30th anniversary of my grade 12 year beginning. And on that first weekend of grade 12, there was an accident in which one of my classmates died. And I made a promise to be the best Christian for that next year, and I probably shared this story before, to be the best Christian that year, to tell everybody I could about Jesus. And all of a sudden it was December and I had far less days, and all of a sudden it was Easter and I had far less days, and all of a sudden it was graduation, my own graduation, and I didn't feel I had lived up to anything of what I thought I owed or promised God I would do. And I don't think my story, that story may be unique, but I don't think it's the only one that sounds or feels like that. That we want people to know Jesus. We want people to go to heaven. And I pray that my witness in my high school years was not dependent on me saying my formula of words to every single person in my classroom and that my testimony in my life and the things I said at other times or in different ways meant something or planted some seeds. But it wasn't according to what I thought I was supposed to do. And so today, we're going to read some scripture and you're going to hear what Jesus all did before he challenges people to be a part of the harvest. And I want you to catch, if you catch anything, that it's more than just sitting down with somebody and just asking them to pray. I'm all for that. We will continue to do that here. We'll continue to do it in programs. We want to lead people to, and help them make those words and decisions to follow Jesus. But what I'm saying is it is, doesn't just boil down to that. It's not the high pressure that you have to get to that point, And it's not the relief that once you get there, that's all there is to it. There's so much more to the kingdom of God than just somebody praying a prayer in and of itself. So here, Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 to 38. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send workers into his harvest field. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, taught, proclaimed, healed, saw the crowds, had compassion, spoke to the disciples. If we were to look back in the first 30-some verses of Matthew chapter 9, we see that Jesus forgave and then healed the paralyzed man. He called Matthew the tax collector to be one of his disciples. He answered the Pharisees and their challenges about fasting. He healed the woman with her issue of blood. He raised the dead girl to life. He healed blind eyes in two men, and he healed a demon-possessed man who could not speak. And then he said... The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. If we were to have read on, in response to everything that Jesus did and then his challenge to pray for laborers, the verses after that says, say this. 
No, pardon me. Before what I just said, it's written in verse 33 and 34. The crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees, the religious leaders said, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. Wow. Talk about being able to do something. Jesus, the Son of God, out there doing, if anyone can do pure work and have pure motives, it's Jesus. And the crowd was amazed, and the Pharisees said, no, it's attributed to Beelzebub, the the prince of demons. There's lots we can learn in that scripture. Whose harvest is it is one of the things we can ask. Whose harvest is it? In verse 37 and 38, he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Whose harvest is it? It is the Lord's. He owns the harvest. He is the one responsible for it. It's God's creation, God's plan for redeeming mankind. God wants a harvest to come in more than the laborers do. He wants people to come know him more than laborers do. He wants people to be healed and delivered. He wants them to hear good news. He wants them to be made whole. It's his. We are simply to be available to him. You see, as I reference back to my opening comments, I thought the harvest at times was my own. I was the one that was made responsible for the harvest. And if we, I can tell you I've been around, I haven't been around the harvest field too much, but let me tell you, at the Beitler farm, if, and we, there are hired men and they're great guys and there's uh, some that are there year after year and some change, but I don't think it would go well if the hired men showed up and said, how's my crop doing? How's my field today? Yes, they help plant it. Yes, they help fertilize it. Yes, they're helping bring in the harvest. But it, I can pretty well tell you that it doesn't go well if the laborers claim the harvest to be their own. And so we have to be careful that as we're invited into the harvest, not only do we not get to call it our own, we don't have to own the responsibility of it. We get to be a part of it. There's, there's something cool going on when there's somebody that owns the harvest and is responsible for it, and you get to come underneath that. Now, part of the exciting part is not just whose harvest is it, but whose are we in the harvest. So God, it's God's harvest. He created mankind even, um, even though we're born sinners, we are, people can see the image. We're, we're a fallen image of, of God. Is that right language? Somebody email and correct me, I'm sure, if I said that in wrong language or order. But we, God has instilled personalities and, and giftings, and that's why people who don't know Jesus can still accomplish things in this world, because God has made everybody special, but he, we're, they're spiritually dead if we don't come into relationship with Jesus with God through Jesus. Whose harvest? It's God. Whose are we? We are actually the owners. I just made a bunch of examples about the laborers. 
as followers of Jesus, when we put our trust in God, when we become a spiritually alive in Him because we've prayed and asked Jesus to forgive us and we've given our lives over to Him, we've surrendered to Him, we are no longer laborers. We're no longer hired people. See, now we're in that sweet spot called son or daughter. You see, the son, when he's still under the father who is in control, the father is responsible. You see, when I showed up at the field, I just had an hour. All I got to do was eat. Maybe it was the best circumstance. But if I was down there for a week as the son, I would have been maybe driving a truck, maybe running a combine, maybe driving the food out to the field. There's one, maybe hauling fuel to keep the, the vehicles going. But as the son, I didn't own the equipment. I don't pay the bills. Like it was, it's my dad's and it's the, the farm's. It's theirs. And I get to come work under all the, the grace and all the structure and all the organization that is there. And as a son, even though I'm not responsible for it at that time, it's, I get to call ownership to it because I'm a son. He's my father. As his children, his sons and daughters, are, are what he has was, is ours. Accord, I think so. Sorry, Dad, if I'm saying this out of turn. <laughs> Claiming inheritance publicly online isn't the what I'm actually trying to do. But now you take that to God the Father. And we, He's made us co-heirs with Jesus. And we are His sons. And so He's inviting us to be a part of the harvest as His son or daughter, not as a laborer. So we know what He's doing. We're invested into it, but we're not treated as just a hireling or a laborer. We get to enjoy the fruit. When the harvest is coming in, we've been a part of that. It's not just some distant thing for somebody else. We have ownership and claim and are a part of it because we're sons and daughters. And so what's the difference between a laborer and a son and daughter in the harvest? There's a whole different level of, of ownership or, or desire to be a part of it. It, it can't just be a nine-to-five job because you're, you're engaged in it. You're invested. Your flesh and blood is tied up in that. It's part of who you are. And because God owns it, we are, are His and we're working alongside Him. We're not just working for Him. He's not a harsh taskmaster just telling us as some type of laborer to finally get some harvest in. He's actually inviting us as his children to step into the joy of the harvest. See, it was with no pain that I show you that picture of my dad praying for supper for field, harvest, supper in the field. Everybody was loving harvest time this year. It was good to be there. There's a joy. Enter into the joy of the harvest. That's what it felt like at that particular place and time. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I don't think I have this coming up on the screen. I just wanted you to, to hear it. And I'm going to highlight a couple things as we go, get to them. 2 Corinthians 5, 16. So from now on, we regard no one with a worldly point of view, from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ 
and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. You see, he's given us a ministry. We're not just told what to do. We are, we are part of his plan. We're given a ministry to help bring reconciliation to the world. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on God's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the day of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Christ's ambassador, God's co-workers. He's making his appeal through us. See, an ambassador is, is a someone that gets to speak for the royal authority. We are, Christ's, we are God's ambassadors, and he is actually making his appeal to the world through us. So what changes in your mindset if you view yourself as an ambassador rather than a laborer? An ambassador always carries an important message. The ambassador, I guess in political worlds, there can be, there can be some difficult messages you have to carry, carry to the country you're an ambassador to, of which some of what we have to do as ambassadors is carry a difficult message. But the ambassador, I've never seen... Uh, an ambassador's remarks on the news, and any ambassador to Canada from the States or from China or from other places, you don't see a lot of ambassadors making apologies. You don't see them backing down from what their message is supposed to be to the country that they're representing to. And so as ambassadors, we are speaking for God because he's given us a message of reconciliation. That's not a bad message. In light of what some ambassadors have had to carry to the world to say, to bring that God loves, God has a plan, God's done the work so that you can be in relationship with him. You see, we are ambassadors in this harvest. Part of the repicturing of what I want to do with, with the idea of spiritual harvest and being engaged in it and seeing souls come to know Jesus is that there's no other place and nothing else we would rather be doing. I'm kind of a, I'm definitely a city farm boy now. Enough farm boy left in me that I can go back and know which vehicle to get into to combine. <laughs> Don't know how to drive the combine, but I know how to get in it. But seeding is a lonely job often. You fill up your tank and you drive all day planting seeds in the ground. One person, there's no big field supper in the field. You take a lunch with you. And you just work all day. And then there's spraying. You spray that by yourself. You might have contact with somebody in that. And then you, there's the waiting. You don't go have supper in the field when there's the waiting because you're trampling on the plants that are growing. Get in trouble if you go have a picnic in the field. But when it's harvest time, whoosh, the world flies into action. Different equipment more people. You see the abundance. 
The grain represents food. It represents resources. It represents money. For farmers, there's something that people who aren't farmers won't understand, but the connection to the land and getting to see that stuff flow in that you have put your faith will happen months before by pounding money into resources. There's a relief that comes. There's an excitement. There's an enthusiasm. There is joy when there's a harvest that comes together. You see, in the spiritual harvest, I think too often we've talked about it in a way that just breeds fear. You better do it if you want your reward in heaven. You better do it or that person isn't going to go to heaven. There's hell. You better say this. You better do this. Or, or somebody's blood's going to be on your hand, hands. And I am, I am not at all, not only not minimizing, I affirm that there is a heaven to gain and a hell to shun according to what Scripture says and that Jesus is the way to heaven. But we, we get to carry this message with a heart of hope and love. We get to be part of a team that brings love of Jesus to the world and hopefully see people respond, and we can't make people respond. They have to be drawn by the Holy Spirit. We're working in tandem with the Holy Spirit. But to be able to work together. There's a part in verse 35 that we read where it says, he went out, he proclaimed good news, he healed every disease and sickness, he saw people, he had compassion, he recognized that the harvest was plentiful, and then he told them to pray. I just want to hang out, you can go through there and look at the different things, I want to hang out there for a minute on the fact that he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom. What a horrible, horrible thing if we think we have to take a message to the world that is bad news. If we have, can you imagine the Amazon uh, package delivery person coming to your house, bringing a package of bad news and he knows it's bad news that's going to wreck your life or that he's got to convince you to take because it's bad news? Not a very fun job to be the deliverer of bad news. But we are ambassadors of good news. And Jesus went around proclaiming good news. I was challenged in my devotions a couple weeks ago where it said, Jesus proclaimed the good news to the poor. And I've been thinking about that for two weeks because I can't get my head around preaching good news to the poor without coming along with a check to fix their bank account or to get them into a new place or a better place or a bigger place. See, we have a misconstrued picture of what our news is sometimes. And that if we actually believe that it's good news, we might actually experience the good news ourselves and, and be enjoying it more so we have something good to say to somebody. If we're fearful, if we think it's bad news, if we're expecting a rejection and we recognize that there's challenges in discipleship or it's all hard and do you want to hear, do you want to hear this news? We're not so likely to step into it. But Jesus was convinced that he was good news. And because he was good news, it said he looked out and saw them harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion on them. 
Anybody seen anybody or heard any news in the last 18 months where people feel harassed or helpless or feel like they're lost like a shepherd? Anybody seen any news like that in the world? It was to people like that that Jesus had compassion. He didn't get mad at them that they didn't believe in him yet or that they weren't following him or that they weren't doing things right. Jesus didn't spend his time mad at the lost and hurting people. He spent his time taking good news to them and being good news to them by seeing them healed and delivered. And then he he had compassion. Folks, as this election comes to a close, as COVID's in whatever wave it's in right now, as world leaders do what they're doing, as schools do what they do, as employers do what they do, as as, uh, unions and employees do what they do, and as the health field does what it does, I don't really think, no matter where you land on any one given thing as a follower of Jesus Christ, that you want to expend all your energy and equity making whatever point that is your news. You can. And I, there may be a calling in some way that I don't fully understand or wouldn't want to be referring to right now. But I just want to say that there's Christians in every angle that I just kind of drew right now. There's Christians in all of them. And so the problem is if we expend our energy just on an opinion, we're all of a sudden fighting a brother and sister when we're supposed to be teaming up in regards to bring good news to the kingdom. And so the message is called, The Harvest is Ready, Now What? And, and some of this is supposed to be a little bit of a feel of going into the fall, COVID's still around. Now what? Well, if Jesus was actually looking around and he saw them harassed and hassled, if he saw them as sheep without a shepherd, and he was able to bring compassion, I think we have a world that qualifies. I think we have people that are feeling harassed. I think we have people that are feeling helpless. I think we have people that are feeling fearful and lost and insecure. I'm, I'm one of those guys half the time. And you experience it in your lives in different times. And there's people out there that don't know Jesus that would really be experiencing it and don't know if there's a way around it or out of it or through it. And so we need to, we need to reframe and repicture that as Jesus had compassion on them, that's why he went with good news. That's why we want to go to people with our actions and with where we serve and with what we say. We want to be going to people with a heart of compassion because people are lost. You and I have been lost. People feel helpless and they need a savior. They need a shepherd. It's good news because being rescued when you're lost is good news. It's just confusing news if you didn't know you were lost and you thought that helpless and hopeless and lost and distressed was the only thing there was to get through this world. That's why we actually have good news because some people don't recognize it as such. So Jesus, what happened when he said the harvest was plentiful, the need for harvest workers, he told his disciples, hurry up, why are you sitting around, get to work. Hello? True? (laughs) Not really. Whoops, I shouldn't have asked for volunteers. 
What did he say first? You're not wrong. It's just second. He said, pray for laborers. He said, pray. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Praying. Lots of pastors can get frustrated with the uh, concept of pray because there's messages been preached. Don't just... Don't just pray, do something, stuff like that. Like, get active, all that kind of stuff. But why would Jesus say pray if he's been out doing stuff and he's been seeing results? Why didn't he just say, go do as I've been doing? Because I think prayer is more than just asking somebody to get saved. God, just send me to somebody who wants to get saved. There's a piece of that. But I think when we pray for laborers, God is able to reach our heart. We can recognize that we are one of those of which we pray for. I think it softens our heart so that we don't go out as a taskmaster, but rather we go out as a shepherd. We don't go out with complaint. We go out with compassion. And we pursue the people with a loving heart. And so we pray. Do you need to pray to be a Christian? How much do you need to pray? The answer is no, you don't need to pray to be a Christian. And I don't know how much you need to pray to be a Christian but I heard a line the other day is, do you need to, once you're married, do you need to talk to your spouse to be married? No. Do you want to talk to your spouse? Yes. Try a marriage without talking to each other. Why would you want that? Like, you could do it. You could even come to an arrangement that you won't get divorced, although I don't know how. (laughs) How do you do that? We want to pray because then we can listen. And so we pray that God would send workers, send us, give us a heart of attitude that aligns with his heart for the harvest. We want a heart like Jesus for the harvest. The harvest is ready. Now what? Pray. Because Jesus said so. Pray, 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 and pray for others. I think when we pray, we also get strategy. You don't pray and you see a whole harvest? Ah, how am I going to do it all? Grade 12, ah, my whole class, what am I going to do? Ah, my whole workplace. Thankfully, I work at the Rock Church, most are saved. (laughs) But that's not the case for all of you. Part of the Lord of the Harvest, part of uh, uh, the owner at Beitler Farms and where I grew up, is that they have to have a strategy. Because if you don't have a strategy, you don't get to the right fields in time, you don't get the equipment to the right place, you don't have fuel, you need strategy and some organization. When we pray, God can bring strategy to the surface. Yeah, I've been praying for 10 people, I can't all talk to them to this one day at once, but all of a sudden you hear a whisper in your prayer, you should invite that person for coffee this Friday. Or you should text that person. Because what you don't see is what's going on in their heart at any given time. And your whisper of when to coffee, text, pray again, do whatever, could exactly be God's timing for that connection in that harvest. We need strategy in order to be a part of a harvest. Once we get that strategy, we can participate. But coming out of prayer... 
if we didn't have the, the, the command to pray and to set this up, there's a real reality that we could come out one of two ways. Because Jesus said the harvest is plentiful, so he spoke and we got to do something. Is it with urgency that the harvest is in place, or is it with pressure? If you view the harvest as pressure-filled, you're going to break equipment because you're in a rush. Somebody could get hurt or killed. Pressure on the field and pressure during harvest and stress that goes along with pressure kills people. It sucks the life out. It sucks the joy at best, and it physically can harm people. It can harm relationships because in pressure, I bark at my partner rather than find out why they're five minutes late to the field. See, pressure in the harvest isn't God's plan for you. You cannot save the whole world. That was Jesus' job. He paid the price, and now he's got you engaged in the kingdom to participate to just be obedient to do your part as a son or daughter. You don't have to have the pressure. What you can have, and I distinguish it, is you can have a sense of urgency. It's not, I don't care about the harvest. I don't care about that person. No, there can be an urgency that you pray or that you make sure you follow through with your commitments. You make sure you show up when you say you're going to show up. But urgency is different than pressure because in urgency, you can surrender that to God and he can align that as strategy. Pressure is just potentially poisonous and dangerous. What is your belief about the harvest and yourself? Is the harvest ready? Whose responsibility is it? Do you have any feelings like what I've described in and of myself where it's felt like pressure or people's, people were my responsibility, the world was my responsibility? How does it make you feel? What role do you have? There's some huddle questions that'll be on the screen after that might take you down that road or you can check out, check out later to consider and prayerfully go through this scripture again. But as I said, my desire was to see our mindset change from like labor and pressure and stress as if we are to own it and shift it to being a son or a daughter under the Lord of the harvest and simply getting to step in with it in joy that he will give us the strategy. He will give us the plan. We just have to be a willing son or daughter and we get to enjoy what he has because he wants it more than us. Amen. The worship team is, is uh, coming at this time. If, this, if these words resonate within your heart, just pray them quietly to the Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you for the harvest. I see the world is ripe if it means lost and hopeless, sheep without a shepherd. I choose to respond to you by surrendering again my life to be your son and daughter as a partner and co-laborer in the harvest. Lead me and show me what to do next. In Jesus' name. And Lord, I pray that for this church, that we would be people of the harvest, loving people all along the way with an eye as to what you would have us do for any given person or people at any given moment. In Jesus' name, amen.